0: All right. Well, we're going to get started now. And if you're, you can just say to the person you're talking to, hey, let's finish this conversation over tea and coffee after the service. God's word is about to be preached. I need to get blessed. Tell your neighbor, God's got something for you this morning. And if you've already had it, tell your neighbor, God's got more for you this morning. Okay, well, Arnold Bennett uh, has been an active uh, elder at a church, and he's uh, on the advisory elders team, and... Uh, He's got so much wisdom, as you can see from his hair. So listen up. People say, Addison, you've been getting a lot of white hairs. I'm like, yeah, I've been getting wise fast. It's amazing. So let's pray for for Arnold for even more wisdom. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Arnold. We thank you for our brother, for his time that he's spent listening to you, receiving your word, and leaning upon you for insight, for illumination by your spirit. We thank you for how you've been speaking to him and for the wisdom that you've given him. We pray that you'd bless him as he speaks from your word. Lord, that you would give us attentive ears to hear what you are saying by your spirit. Jesus, we in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.
1: Amen. Well, actually, before I begin, I should just give you a little correction on something that Uh, Dave Borman put in his uh, pastor's corner uh, on the email that most of you received. uh, He said that I had uh, heard Bob Birch preach to InterVarsity in the Okanagan. I'm not quite sure how he got that information. What I told him was that Bob Birch at one time was involved with InterVarsity, and he also showed the sermons from science from the Moody Bible Institute, which some of you, if you've got gray hair, might know about. Um, He had a serious car accident and a long, difficult recovery from that. As a result, he went to the Okanagan and he had a orchard. And as a teenager, I went with my uncles and cousins on a fishing trip and they knew Bob Birch. So we stopped in at his orchard and visited him. So how that got into that story in your email, I'm not quite sure, but that's the correction. Okay, Um, we're in Nahum this morning We've come to it in our series. It's one of the so-called minor prophets. They're called minor prophets because they're shorter books as opposed to the major prophets, which are longer books. It's maybe not one that you're too familiar with. In fact, when Addison asked me to speak on Nahum, my enthusiasm was somewhat restrained. I did say that Nahum wouldn't have been my first choice as a book to preach on, but it probably wouldn't be many others' first choice either. And, uh, but um, I also said that I believed every book in the Bible ultimately points us to Jesus. So I believe that the Holy Spirit will help us to ferret that out this morning. And I believe he will. What I didn't say to Addison is, how many others have turned you down before you got to me? (laughs) I read through the Bible every year and have done so for many, many years. It used to be that I would read a hard copy, if you like, and I went through various different translations, including study Bibles, where I would read all the notes But now we have Bible apps. As a matter of fact, we now have Bible, a zillion, Bible. well, I guess that's an exaggeration, but there are multiple Bible apps that allow you to read through the Bible in one year. And I want to encourage everybody to do that. We're going through the Bible book by book in this series, but it doesn't take you very long uh even when i read my study bible and read all the notes it didn't take more than half an hour the wonderful thing about the bible apps is instead of standing in line playing uh sudoku or solitaire read a section it's easy to do it's easy to do and uh, so i want to encourage everybody to make a practice of reading through the Bible. It's God's word. It's a lamp unto our feet. And so absorb the Bible. This is my encouragement to you. Now, some books of the Bible are easier to read than others. And uh, while uh, Nahum might not be my first choice, I believe that every book in the Bible is there for a purpose. They're there both as lessons to us and they point us towards the coming of Jesus Christ, which is the ultimate turning point in history. We talk about B.C. and A.D., our whole dating system is based on the coming of Jesus Christ. That is the turning point in history. Nahum is a short book. It's only three chapters, which is of course why it's called a minor prophet. Uh, We could actually read through this whole book this morning, but we won't. We will instead read a few select verses and you may follow along in your Bible or your Bible app or whatever you're using. Some Old Testament prophecies are clearly fulfilled in the New Testament. Others leave us with maybe more questions than answers. Are they yet to be fulfilled? Were they partially fulfilled? Is there some more uh, complete fulfillment in the future? Or did something happen? Did something change? Uh, the outcome be, were they conditional prophecies? For example, in Jonah's, uh, prophecy of destruction to Nineveh, which we're going to refer to a bit, there was a change. They repented. And so the prophecies of doom didn't happen. Others, is it disobedience? Was there disobedience and why the good things didn't happen? Now... There are others, like Daniel's prophecy, which have amazing historical fulfillment. And Nahum is one of those prophecies. This is what we're going to look at first this morning. Fulfillment of a prophecy is the best evidence of its authenticity and of biblical scripture itself. But before we do it, let's put this prophecy in context. If we're going to be able to apply the right lessons from scripture, it's helpful to understand the context that existed when it was written. Everything in those times was religious, politically, nationally, economically, militarily, agriculturally, relationally, our Western idea of the separation of secular and religious was completely foreign concept in biblical times. It was all religious. And Nahum, therefore, is more than a prophecy concerning a historical geopolitical event. Nahum's name means comfort or consolation or relief. And and uh, Nehemiah's fall would be comfort to Judah. The fall of Nineveh occurred in 1612 BC. Uh, Nahum refers to what happened to Non Anam or Thebes on the Nile in 1663 BC. So the prophecy was written sometime between 663 and 612 BC. More likely after the reforms of King Josiah in 612 BC which seem to be referred to in chapter one and verse 15. These dates may differ slightly with different historians. Establishing, you know, an exact dates in historical times is a bit problematic. Nobody ever wrote down such and such BC, uh, obviously, but it was dates were in the second, third, fourth year of a certain ruler, and so forth. So coordinating all of this kind of information, establishing exact dates, that may be difficult, but the precise dates are really not that important, but only to give us an understanding of the context. Assyria, of which Nineveh was the capital, had already destroyed Samaria and carried off the northern kingdom of Israel into captivities. The Assyrians were a, were brutally cruel, inflicting torture and mutilation on leaders of conquered cities before executing them. After the capture of Thebes in chapter three, verse 10, it says that they dashed infants to pieces at the head of every street. Nahum lists these and other sins that have brought the wrath and the judgment of God on them. Ezekiel 32, verse 22 to 23 tells us that the prophecy was fulfilled, but the Bible doesn't record the actual fall of Nineveh. But the Babylonian Chronicles do. The Babylonian Chronicles were a series of clay tablets recording the major events in Babylonian history for over 500 years from the 700s BC. Now I've read the translation of the conquest of Nineveh by the Median and Babylonian armies described in it. History is generally written by the victors and not the losers and tends to be a bit triumphal in its readings. That's not so with the Babylonian Chronicles. It was basically written by accountants and therefore about as exciting to read as you might expect. It does tell how Nabu-Polazzar of the Babylonians and Sia ares king of the Medes, formed an alliance to conquer Assyria. Nabu-Polazzar was the father of Nebuchadnezzar, whom we might be more familiar with. It doesn't give a lot of details as to what happened, but it does give a detailed chronological record. For example, it says that Syaz Ares and the Medes went home after the fall of Nineveh. Most interesting is the information that the seeds of Nineveh only lasted three months. Now, Nineveh, was on the eastern side of the Tigris River in what is now eastern Mosul in Iraq the Kosher river runs ran through it providing a steady, steady source of water it covered an area of some 750 hectares circumscribed by a 12 kilometer fortified fortification wall with 15 gates it was the largest city in the world at that time the wall system consisted of a stone retaining wall about 6 meters high surrounded by a mud brick wall about 10 meters high and 15 meters thick. The retaining wall had projected stone towers spaced about every 18 meters. The stone wall and the towers were topped by three-step battlements. It was completely surrounded by a water-filled moat over 45 meters wide. In other words, it would seem like an extremely formidable task to conquer it. How did this take place in three months? You would expect it to take years. Siege, starve them out. How did it happen? This is where Nahum tells us how it happened. In chapter 2, verse 1, an attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. The Babylonians marched up the Tigris River Valley, and the Medes came from the east around the Caspian Sea. Verse 3, the shields of the soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. This could refer to red being the color of the Medes. Their soldiers wore red and their shields were painted red. Verse 5, Nineveh surmounts her pick troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. Now the protective shield was a huge leather shield barrier that would be lowered over the wall to help deflect the boulders and various projectiles, arrows and so forth that would be sent against them to break down the walls. Now, verse six, the river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. And verse 1, or verse 8 of chapter 1, says, But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. The Babylonian chronicles speak of a flood washing away some of the wall. It is believed that there were existing floodgates to control the water that went in the uh, the moat and so forth on the Kosher River. These could have made it easier to completely stop the flow. And they built up this flood of water and then suddenly released the water and it washed away the foundations of the wall. That's how it happened in three months, and we know that from Nahum's prophecy. Um, Verse 7, it is decreed that Nineveh be exiled and carried away. The city was utterly destroyed and ceased to exist. Chapter 3 and verse 3 describes the complete destruction and devastation. Charging cavalry, flashing swords, and glittering spears, many casualty, piles of dead bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses. Probably something we'd rather hear about than see. Verse 8, Nineveh is like a pool whose water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry but no one turns back. This could either be a literal event caused by the damming of the river, or it could be metaphorically for those who are fleeing the city. And verse 9 of chapter 2, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, The wealth from all its treasures. Assyria's wealth was based on plundering other cities that it conquered now all that wealth was being plundered and verse 10 she is pillaged plundered strips hearts melt knees give way bodies tremble every face grows pale and chapter 3 verse 16 says you have increased the number of your merchants till they are more numerous than the stars in the sky. But like locusts, they strip the land and then they fly away. All these merchants who had grown rich and profited by Assyria's conquests were left in despair and destitute. And verse 11 of chapter two, Where now is the lion's den? The place where they feed their young, where the lion and the lioness went, and the cubs with nothing to fear. Now, the lion was very much a part of Assyrian culture and architecture. Uh, There were many lion sculptures in Nineveh, including at the city gates, perhaps a little like the Lions Gate Bridge, only these were much bigger. This might be a metaphoric reference to the elaborate palace where the king and the high officials lived. There is some suggestion that the king might have committed suicide in any case palace was consumed by fire and no one survived. Over the next centuries, the winds blew the desert sand over the site, and it wasn't until the 1800s that archaeologists started to dig at the site and found the ruins. Well, what lessons can we learn from this this morning And how does it point us to Jesus? Our first is we are by nature in rebellion against God. Nineveh was guilty of violence and greed. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, Full of plunder never without victims as i said many had grown rich from the plunder of conquered lands and verse 19 of chapter 3 says all who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall for who has not felt your endless cruelty now from genesis to revelations It's a story of man's rebellion against God. As a result of this rebellion against God, history is one of continual warfare with all its violence and suffering. You've heard the saying, might makes right, and many have lived by that, but Psalm 2 verse 1 to 2 says why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the lord against his anointed it is not only the geopolitical strife that we see in history but in the behavior of of societies themselves and the laws that they pass. Good is called evil and evil is called good. And we see even in our own country, anti-Christian laws passed. It's interesting that our federal government with all the issues that we face as a nation made its first priority after the election to pass a law banning a red herring, so-called conversion therapy. Conversion therapy is loosely defined, either by design, if you're a conspiracy theorist, or incompetence. Now, having worked for the government, I'm inclined to believe the latter though some might suspect the former. None of this should surprise us. Jesus said in John 15, verse 18 to 19, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, But I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. And you and I are no different. Paul makes it clear in Romans 7 that we are by nature in rebellion against God. Paul says in Romans 3, verse 10 to 18, there is no unrighteous not even one there is no one who understands there is no one who seeks god all have turned away they have together become worthless there is no one who does good not even one their throats are open graves their tongues practice deceit the poison of vipers is on their lips their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. But our next point is, is that God is in control and will bring justice. This is the good news. In chapter 1 and verse 2 of Nahum says, the Lord is jealous and an avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. We can sometimes feel discouraged by what's going on in our world. We may not understand why God allows certain things to happen, But by faith, we believe he is in control. We may not be delivered from whatever the situation we find ourselves in, but we know that God is with us in the situation. You know, I grew up as a child during World War II. Hitler's armies had conquered most of Europe and he ended up committing suicide in his bunker as his armies collapsed around him. Mussolini had dreams of creating a new Roman Empire. He and his mistress were shot by the partisans as they tried to flee the country, and their bodies were hung upside down from a metal girder above a service station in Milan. Tojo and the Japanese armies conquered much of Asia and the Pacific from the Aleutians to Burma. But after a failed attempt at suicide, he was hung as a war criminal. There have been many tyrants before and after who thought that they could do whatever they want without consequences. As I was preparing this sermon, I couldn't help but think of Putin and his invasion of the Ukraine. I don't know how it's all going to end, but I know that God sees and cares for every woman and child that is needlessly murdered. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worthless, worth more than sparrows. I don't know if you realize how humorous It is that our hairs in our head are numbered. I'm sure that I don't have the same number this morning that I have now, or that I will have this evening. And when you think that your God knows the number, that's amazing. That's amazing. Every kingdom built on evil and tyranny will eventually fall. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And our next point, God moves on his time. Verse 3 of chapter 1 of Nahum says, the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. In God's time, Nineveh was destroyed. Sometimes we may think God should move more quickly, but God moves on his time, not ours. In God's time, he sent Jesus to die on a cross to deliver you and I from our sin, and he will come again at his appointed time. Now, we are fortunate that God is patient. Otherwise, you and I wouldn't be here. And so we're glad that God is a patient God. God has great patience to give us an opportunity to repent, and that ne- leads us to our next point. God calls us to repent, and has provided for our salvation. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven says, "Surely as I live," declares the Sovereign Lord, "I will I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked." but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? That remains God's appeal to you and I today. We can, through faith in Jesus Christ, blood shed on the cross, be delivered from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and ultimately from the very presence of sin. Verse 7 of chapter 1 of Nahum says, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. And verse 15, Look there on the mountains, the feet, of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. you will be, They will be completely destroyed. And Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Paul quotes this passage to refer to the preaching of the gospel and the need for people to hear it. We can choose to repent and receive God's forgiveness for our sins and make him our Lord. He will give us the Holy Spirit to enable us to do that. And my final point is, start well and end well. Jonah's prophecy caused Nineveh to repent and turn from their sinful ways. But they soon returned to these same evil practices. It did not end well. A century Later, they were completely destroyed. This is a warning to us. Ending well is something that I have always been mindful of. Jesus told a parable about a farmer who went out to sow his seed, and it fell on different ground. Jesus explained the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are those who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while but in time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and and by persevering, produce a crop. The seed on the good ground ends well, but sadly, not all does. Some receive the good news and make a profession of faith, but as time goes on, things happen. I was an elder for many years, and sadly, I have seen too much. It can be discouraging sometimes. It's not just church leaders and televangelists who make the news. It's the marriages that end up on the rocks. Some who have been the source of division in the church, which Paul tells us to have nothing to do with. I could list situations that did come to mind as I was preparing this sermon. But I'm not going to give them to you because I'd rather think about those who have that the seed has fallen on good ground that they've accepted found faith in Christ and moved on to serve him but the there in the parable there are others who have not put down roots others were Other things have taken priority, and they don't mature. God is always calling us to repent and return to following him. Revelations 3.19 is the angel speaking to the church in Laodicea. It says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. That's God's desire for you and me. At the heart of this is where is my focus? Is it on the Lord or is it on myself? It's not about you and me, it's about God and his glory. How is my life bringing glory to God? God has given us the Holy Spirit to give us the power to overcome sin. He has given us his word, the Bible, as a light to our feet, to show us how we are to live, he has also put us in the body of Christ. We have pastors, teachers, and each other to help us to stay focused on him. Now, it was great during the COVID lockout to sit in our living rooms and watch the sermon on YouTube, but we need to be with one another to challenge each other to be all that God wants us to be. Being isolated can cause us to slowly drift away. We may not, we may not immediately appreciate it being challenged, but it is for our good. We can also not see the danger signs in our own life that others can see. I can give you one example from my own life. When Barney Coombs first came here, I was a a commercial real estate salesman with a large national company and was a regular member of the President's Roundtable, which really doesn't mean much other than acknowledging uh, that you were one of the top producers. And I knew the manager in the Vancouver office wasn't getting along with the head office in Toronto, but it really wasn't my concern. But then he suddenly quit and they were looking for someone to replace him and offer the job to me. I wasn't too keen as it w- I would lose a lot because as a manager I wouldn't be allowed to sell myself and I had a lot of very good li- listings that would provide a good income in the future. And, and commercial real estate is not like residential where you list a house and sell it, and and collect a commission all within a relatively short time. Uh, One of my listings was a downtown office building, which was going to be built, and I had put in a lot of work in getting the listing in the first place, preparing lease documents and so forth, marketing materials, and I wouldn't receive an income from all this work until the tenants actually moved in. And uh, the manager's job, which I was offered, was a percentage of the gross and a percentage of the profit. Uh, it would be a drop in my income, but I could see the challenge and something I could do for the rest of my career. So I took the job. I made some changes and hired and trained young BCIT grads because they would do what I tell them. and. <laughs> The volume increased, and the profit, which had been barely break-even, was substantially increased. I was thoroughly enjoying being a manager and thought that I had found my calling in life. There were, however, other consequences. My wife and five children often had to eat dinner without me as I wouldn't be home on time. I was an elder, and our meetings where at lunchtime I would often arrive late and while my body was there my mind was still back at the office I wasn't seeing any of the danger signs one of the problems of being a branch manager out in Vancouver is you're out of the corporate loop and the politics that are going back east in the head office and much to my sh- Shock and surprised. One day I was advised that they were sending out a new manager from Toronto and I could continue on as assistant manager on a salary. Instead, I negotiated a settlement and left. As somewhat traumatized, I shared all this with Barney. His response was You know who's responsible, don't you? I thought, this must be a theological question. (laughs) So I answered, God? (laughs) Barney said, no. And then he pointed to himself, and he said, me? I don't know what I said to him, but I must have stared at him in disbelief. He then went on to explain that he'd been praying that God would get me out of this job that I loved. He saw that it had become the focus of my life and was robbing me of the zeal to serve God's kingdom. Would I be wealthier today if I had stayed? Probably. But Mark 8, 36 says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? it might not have ended well. Unfortunately, some can't take correction. Proverbs 9 8 says, Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. I was there when the charismatic movement first started. Not only did I see the gifts of the Spirit being exercised, but the vocabulary changed. I grew up in a church family, and I heard people saying things like, God willing, we will do thus and so, or God bless you, or the Bible says... But I didn't hear people saying, praise God, and God showed me this, or he spoke to me, or he revealed this. It, it, it all suggested an intimate relationship with God, which for many was true. But what I soon discovered is that just because someone had the vocabulary, it didn't necessarily mean that they were right with God. I can think of some examples, but I won't give them to you. It got to where the more I heard someone sound spiritual, the more suspicious I became. It's not what you say, it's what you do that matters. It is what we do that brings glory to God or dishonors his name. My great fear was that I might do something to dishonor God. This more than anything is what has put guardrails on my life. A couple of years ago, I sat in a courtroom and heard someone who called himself a Christian and used all the vocabulary in spades. At one time, he seemed to have a lot of promise to serve God, but he had a history of being unable to take any correction. In fact, anyone who tried to bring correction or advice ended up being attacked. Everybody else was wrong and he was right. No matter what the facts were, he always had his own alternative facts, as a former president would say. He was there because he was trying to get a court order he didn't agree with changed. As he began to give his alternative facts to the judge, I could see that the judge was losing patience with him, at one point threatening to have the sheriff put him in a cell block if he didn't give the judge a straight answer. As the judge gave his ruling, he called this person a liar, narcissistic, a hypocrite, delusional, only wanting court orders he liked in force, but felt free to ignore those he didn't like. He would do anything to get his own way including destroying his wife and family. The most painful thing for me was when the judge says, and you call yourself a Christian, do you believe in the Ten Commandments? I thought, how could someone who called themselves a Christian so bring dishonor to God's name? I told him if a judge had said this to me, I would be down on my knees in deep repentance." His response was the judge was biased against him, was old, and should have retired long ago. He had become so hardened to the truth and any correction that he couldn't even hear a judge and what the judge said to him. I don't want to give you a list of people who have not ended well, but the Bible is honest about man's failure, and it is a warning to us. My exhortation to you this morning is to start well and end well. There are many trials and temptations along the way, but it's a journey that we don't take alone. The letters to the seven churches in Revelations, are a warning to us as well. Let us end well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this prophecy of Nahum. It tells us of a city that repented but then turned back to their evil ways. Father, you've called us to repentance. And we want to walk in that repentance. Help us, Father, against all the trials and temptations that we walk through, to stay steadfast with our eyes on you. Keep us from getting our eyes on ourselves and putting ourselves first and not you. Lord, as long as we put you first, You will ensure and help us to end well. Amen.